from last week, we uh, began looking at the book of Esther, which is an incredibly challenging and intimidating book to look at because throughout church his history, there have been scholars who felt like it didn't even be in the scriptures. Uh, many have felt it could never have been a part of the canon. As we read through the story, and we won't read all ten chapters today, I'm going to quickly summarize. And To summarize the word of God is a dangerous thing, and I don't mean to belittle or dismiss or to uh, minimize the importance of the word, but I want to go through the story so we can see how God is at work and how God calls his people to work alongside of him. And how I believe many of us in this sanctuary today have been called by God to work alongside what God is already doing, but we have not been faithful to that call. So I will not begin with one passage of scripture, but we'll be looking at the entire book of Esther. But if you will, just for a moment before we go to his word, allow me to just say one more brief prayer for us. Heavenly Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord. Search us, O oh God, and know our hearts. See if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in way everlasting that we might lead others to the way. We pray these things in Christ's name. As I spoke uh, last week, just to quickly summarize, in the first chapter of Esther, we see the king throwing a great banquet, a great festival that lasted for six months. It was quite a feast. It was really unbelievable. The scriptures even talk about gold curtains and silver couches. And, and to celebrate the fact that he just threw a great six-month party, he decided to throw a week-long party just for men to celebrate the six-month party. No women were allowed, but at some point in the party, he wanted his queen, Queen Vesti, to come by so he could show her off, if you will, to all the men that were here at this, this party he was throwing. When we have reason to believe that she herself was throwing a celebration for the women of the kingdom. And she refused to go to, to be paraded like that, to be uh, put up before men like that. So she refused to go to the king and he asked his advisors and they told him, well, you must get rid of her. She must be banished from your presence. She must never return to your presence. You must banish her. And some believe that she was actually killed. And so the king then begins this journey of finding a new queen. It takes four years. And as we read in chapter 2, we see that all the virgins and uh, young women of the kingdom were brought into one of the palaces and they were all to prepare to have their night with the king. And that's what it was. It was to have a night with the king. And we read in chapter 2 how Esther prepared and bathed in perfume and uh, flowers and ointments for a year before going into the king. I mean, she was really preparing and all of these young ladies were doing that. And we don't like the fact it becomes uncomfortable, and these are one of the reasons why some people throughout the history of the church and why some scholars are uncomfortable with this book, even in the Bible, because really what is happening here is whoever pleases the king sexually is the one who will be the queen. Whoever the one the, queen, the king finds most beautiful, that is the one who will become queen. Now my wife, in her wisdom, as I was sharing what's taking place in chapter 2, how I have to articulate what's actually happening in this culture, she tries to give me these words of wisdom and just, Hoy, just use your words wisely when you're talking about this and sexuality in the Bible. I just, just really use wisdom and be prayerful and write out what you're going to say because I'm just terrified that you're going to say the wrong thing and it's going to come across wrong and you'll embarrass me and the children and then we'll have to leave town. And if I could translate what she was trying to say, I think what she was trying to say is this. Corey, you're a 40-year-old dork. The kids in that chapel really don't want to hear you talk about sex, even if it is in the Bible. So I appreciate her advice, 
He's always looking out for me. But we can't skip over this part. We can't skip by chapter 2. We can't just dismiss it and kind of forget about it because the sexism of the day and the way that women were being exploited, this form of human trafficking, if you will, an extreme, horrific form for these young ladies had no choice but to go to the palace, but to be a concubine. There was no choice. They were ripped from their families, all because the man in power had called them. There is a documentary out there. I had seen trailers. Some of you had posted it on your Facebook page, and uh, the director, Jennifer Tubal-Leachin, is doing uh, tours of different colleges and universities. And her documentary, Misrepresentation, Misrepresentation, explores the underrepresentation of women in positions of power and influences in America. And it challenges the media's limited portrayal of what it means to be a powerful woman, if you could. She says the media is sending this message 24-7 on this entertainment cycle that a woman's value lies in her youth, beauty, and sexuality. Sounds a lot like what's taking place here in Exodus chapter 2. See, all too often we dismiss it as an old book and out of date and not relevant. Then when we hear the quote from Jennifer Tubal-Leachin and how our entertainment cycle 24-7 values youth, beauty, and sexuality in women, then maybe this old book still is relevant. And it highlights the sin and our fallenness and the exploitation of women. The entertainment cycle that a woman's value lies in her youth, beauty, and sexuality, and not in her capacity as a leader, and it is making it difficult for us in America, both men and women, to see women and girls as powerful figures and ultimately then enable them to achieve powerful positions in society. It happened thousands of years ago, and it happens today. How will you respond? I shared last week Exodus was so deeply changed. king. He wanted of all the women this four-year search, and probably different women, if not several each night, he chose her to be his queen. Another reason why people want this book dismissed from scripture, or have in the past. Because once she lied about her ethnicity, she was Jewish, and her cousin who raised her, uh, Mordecai, said, keep that a secret. Don't let anyone know that you're Jewish. So she's kind of being a little deceitful, people feel. And, and then she gets this position of somewhat power, so she's still a woman, and really doesn't have much power, but she has more than the average woman would at that time. And they said, this is, this is uncomfortable. We don't like this. And Esther shouldn't have done that. And so they dismissed her. But we need to be careful not to do that. It still is the word of God. And as Sidney White Crawford in the New Interpreter's Commentary says, if we dismiss Esther because of her actions, we would be doing the book a disservice. Esther's actions must be judged within the social and cultural parameters of her story. And within those parameters, she acts prudently and wisely, thereby protecting herself, her kinsmen, and ultimately her people. She had no choice but go to the palace or be killed. In chapter 2, we come across these five verses. They almost seem out of place where we hear her cousin Mordecai overhearing two eunuchs working out a plan to kill the king. And Mordecai tells Esther, and Esther tells the king, and, and the two eunuchs are killed, and the king's life is saved. 
We then meet a new character, Haman or Haman. There's a feud between them. Haman's like the second in charge in the kingdom, and as he's walking out of the palace, everyone is supposed to bow wherever he goes. They're supposed to show reverence and respect. But Mordecai, who is a Jew, refuses to bow. We don't know all the reasons, but we do know a lot of it has to do with religious and ethnic reasons. And Haman becomes furious. He's furious with Mordecai. He plans to kill him, but not only kill him, he wants to eradicate all of the Jews throughout all 127 provinces. So he casts lots, often referred to as Purim. He casts lots to decide this day of when all the Jews will be eradicated in the 127 provinces. This is anti-Semitism in the scriptures. He wants to kill all the Jews because of his anger for Mordecai is so great. Yes, this old, old book that we often dismiss and think is not relevant today, yet you should know that within the last hundred years, nominal Christian nations have also tried to eradicate the Jews. In just the last hundred years. Maybe the word of God, even the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, is more relevant today than we give it credit for. So he wants to eradicate all the Jews. So Mordecai comes up with this plan to save his people, and he, he goes to Esther, he gets word to Esther, you need to do something, you're the queen, you must go to the king. And she says, I can't go to the king, I haven't seen him in 30 days. If I go to the king and he hasn't summoned me, I could be killed, even the queen. And he says, you have to go for your sake and for your people, and that is where we concluded last week. In verse 14 of chapter 4, if you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arrive from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows? Perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. For such a time as this, you find yourself in a position where you can make a difference. For such a time as this, you can find yourself in a situation or a circumstance where you can be the voice of God. I'm speaking of us here. That maybe at a time such as this, you are supposed to be the voice of God. That you are supposed to be the hands and feet of God in injustices and systems that you see that do not glorify God. But all too often we become afraid and scared. Well, what will people think of me? What will people think of me if I give voice to the one they are abusing, whether verbally or physically or sexually? How will I be viewed then? I would like to say that it's quite possible that for such a time as this, that God has placed you there for a purpose and for a reason. So Esther calls for a time of fasting. And the ancient Jewish reader would know that God is at work in these scriptures, even though the name of God is not mentioned anywhere in the ten chapters, as I said last week. And the ancient Jewish readers would know that God is certainly on the move and at work, and that what Esther is doing and calling for this fast is that she's calling for people to pray for her as she's about to approach the king. So she goes to this time of fasting. She asks her units and everyone to pray. She asks for help and for people to remember her and think of her. And she decides to kind of just walk by the king's palace. Kind of walk by his office. Just kind of slowly walk by, hoping that he sees her as she walks by. Because if he does not point his scepter towards her, she cannot enter. And if she enters without him pointing his scepter towards her, if she dare enter, she would be killed. So her fear was valid. 
And so she requests this banquet. The king calls her in. He points the scepter towards her. And he says, can I throw a banquet for you and Haman? Now remember, Haman is the one that hates Mordecai and is, is going to kill him and all the Jews, which would mean her as well. But she has kept her cultural identity secret. So the king calls her in. And she says, can I just throw a banquet for you and, and, and uh, Haman this afternoon? And, and then I'll tell you what I want. And the king says, sure, of course. Of course you can. The king and Haman go to this banquet. And she says, you know, I want to throw another banquet tomorrow. And then tomorrow for you and Haman, I will tell you what I'm thinking and what I'm wanting. He said he would give her half the kingdom. And she says, I just want to throw you another banquet. Will you come again tomorrow? And he agrees. Now something very interesting happens the night before the banquet. Haman can't sleep. Excuse me. The king cannot sleep. And because the king can't sleep, he does what any of you do when you can't sleep. You get up and you read history books. That's what you do when you can't sleep in the dorm. You get up and read a church history or a history of your culture, the history of your people. I mean, I know that's, that's what we all do. It happened 2,000 years ago. It's 3,000. It happens today. I know. But the king could not sleep. So he's reading the history of his kingdom and he comes across this these verses that we read back in chapter 2 that almost seemed out of place where, where Mordecai uh, overheard that people were going to kill the king and the king's reading this and he goes to one of his advisors and he says, what, if, what did we ever do for this guy who, who saved my life? Did we ever do anything for Mordecai? And one of his advisors says, no, we, we, haven't, done, we haven't done anything. At the same time, this is taking place after Haman had left the first banquet. He's heading home and he sees Mordecai again and just... Just the sight of Mordecai makes him angry. He goes back to his wife and his family and his friends. and He's so angry and they give him advice. And they say, you know what you should do? You should get a 75-foot pole and tomorrow you should impale Mordecai on that pole. You should just, just kill him tomorrow. We'll kill the rest of the Jews later, but tomorrow, before the banquet that the queen is going to throw you, just, just impale him on this 75-foot pole. And Amon takes his wife's advice and the family's advice and his friend's advice and so in the middle of the night, he goes to the kingdom, he goes to the palace to prepare for this event before the feast. So he is there in the courtyard as the king is up and stirring. And as the king's reading the history of this kingdom, he says, you know, what did we do for Mordecai? What did we do for this man? They say, nothing. He said, are any of my advisors out in the courtyard? And they said, well, yes, Haman's out there. He says, bring him in. Bring Haman in. He asked Haman, Haman, what should I do for a man that has been faithful to me? Now Haman thinks he's talking about himself. Haman thinks he's talking about Haman. How should I honor this individual? What should I do to let the kingdom know that he is a great individual? And, you know, Haman's thinking, well, I guess, you know, gee, shucks. Um, I guess you could give him one of your royal robes and uh, let him wear a royal robe that you once wore. And then give him one of your horses that you once rode and... Allow him to ride the same steed that you once rode. and Well, then I guess you could just walk around the kingdom and have someone escort him around the kingdom and announce that this is what the king does for those who honor him. And Haman's getting pretty excited about this thing that's going to happen. And the king says, that's a great idea. I want you to go and get Mordecai the Jew. I want you to put a robe on him. I want you to put him on one of my horses. Then I want you to lead the horse around the kingdom and say, this is what is done for the man that honors the king. Now you can imagine, you can imagine how humiliated Haman was, how frustrated, embarrassed he was, 
how his enemy has been exalted and he has been put in the position of a servant. So he does this in only a few, few short verses. He goes home to his wife and his wife summarizes, he's like, boy, you're in trouble. <laughs> the God of Mordecai it does not appear as if he can be defeated. And just as that moment, the king's guards come and want to take Haman to the palace, to the banquet, to the queen. And the king and the queen are there, and the king finally asks her, and it's just the three of them, the king and Haman and the queen, and he asks, tell me, Esther, what, what can I give you, even if it is half the kingdom? And she says, I need you to save me, and I need you to save my people, for I am going to be killed, and all of my people are going to be killed, all because of one man. And the king is furious and angry, and he says, Who is this man? Who is this man that's going to try to kill my queen and kill her people? And she says, It is this man, Haman. And the king's furious and angry, and you can imagine how Haman is feeling at this time. And his face goes white and pale, and the king storms out, and Haman pleads with the queen to, you know, talk to the king, defend me. And as the king's coming back in, Haman trips and falls on the queen. And now he's really mad. And the scene ends quickly where a black hood was placed over Haman's face. And he knew that his life was over, but not only was his life over, they impaled him on that 75-foot pole that he had set up for Mordecai. The queen further pleads with the king and explains the decree that was sent out to kill all the Jews in the 127 provinces. She and Mordecai plead with the king to issue a new decree. And the king says, I cannot reverse, or I cannot cancel a decree that has already been set with my seal, but you can write a new decree. Write it however you want, and you can steal it. And he gives Mordecai his ring so he can steal the, the decree. And the decree was simply this, that the Jewish people could defend themselves on this day. This day that Haman and others have said to destroy the Jews, where they would kill them, their wives and children, and steal all their land and all the property. You have a right to defend yourself. Please do. We move into chapter 8 and 9. We see these great battles taking place. But even some of the king's uh, leaders were siding with the side of the Jews because it was obvious to them that the kingdom and God was on their side. And there was this great slaughter we read in chapter 9. It lasted two days. There were celebrations. And for two days, the Jewish people defended themselves. And they did not exploit or plunder other people's property. They defended themselves and their children, though 75,000 people did die. At the end of this book, we come to this conclusion where a festival begins, a feast, if you will, and it's called the Feast of Purim. Purim means casting lots, to remember that Haman cast lots to eradicate and kill all the Jews. And as we read in chapter 9, Mordecai, after the victory, sends out this decree. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to the Jews near and far throughout all the king's provinces, encouraging them to celebrate an annual festival on these two days. He told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness and by giving gifts to each other and to the poor. This would commemorate a time when Jews gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning was turned into joy. And to this day, in Jewish communities, the Feast of Purim is still celebrated. To this day. 
If you were to, uh, from the New, I'm from the New York area, and if you were to go into Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, you would see a large Orthodox Jewish community. And the joke was to always go to, to, to Bensonhurst and to the Orthodox communities because it was tradition that you would give money to people. If anyone asked, you were to give them a dollar. So you would see the Jewish and the Orthodox community out just giving dollars away because that was part of the festival, part of the celebration. It is still practiced. And there are four parts to this festival. It goes over two days because the battle lasted two days. And I'm concluding the book here, and I appreciate your patience as we cover this entire book. But there are four things that happen at the Festival of Purim. One, they read the story of Esther for two days. Once the first morning, the second time the second morning. And any time Haman is mentioned, they boo and hiss, and they're all in costumes. And This is a great victory. This is a great celebration story, how people tried to eradicate them, but God, their God, protected and provided for them and kept them safe. So they still celebrate every year, and they continue to tell their story over and over again. They give food and money to the poor. And they give food to friends, and they celebrate in community, and they conclude the day with a great festival. Yes, they still celebrate. They still share their story. They care for the poor. They celebrate with friends. And it's celebration. It really is an amazing book. God is not mentioned anywhere in the ten chapters, and people often wonder, is it spiritual at all? But even again, as we read, it is obvious that God is at work. Just because God is not mentioned in the Bible does not mean that God is not at work. And as I said last week, just because God has not been mentioned in your home does not mean that God is not at work in your life. It does not mean that God is not at work in your home. God is not absent. Have you noticed all the coincidences in my brief summary that really fails in comparison if you go back and read the book? And I encourage you to do that. Have you noticed all the coincidences? It's just a coincidence that the king woke up that night and was reading the history. It's just a coincidence that Mordecai overheard the eunuchs talking about how they planned to kill the king in chapter 2 and how later that would come back to save him and his people. It was just a coincidence that the king had chosen Esther. All these coincidences throughout the scripture, throughout these ten chapters, it is so obvious that God is at work. And if you look closely at your life, if you look closely at your home life, if you look closely at your upbringing, I don't care what type of home life or background it was, if you look closely, you will see that God has been at work. For some, the testimony is your presence in this chapel this morning. That God has been at work and in your life, and moving and acting and orchestrating in ways that you didn't even realize. I believe God is at work in your life. Yet we become overwhelmed with the injustices in the world. We become overwhelmed when we see the way this king practiced and the way he treated women of his kingdom. We become overwhelmed and burdened when we hear things going in our own society, in the media, like Jennifer, like quoting from Jennifer, the director of misrepresentation. Yesterday in our preaching class, we've been reading a book, and I was reminded by, uh, on preaching, but I was reminded of a story by Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary in India for 55 years. She was originally from Ireland. And she had an orphanage and a ministry to temple slave girls for over 55 years. She was often arrested for kidnapping by the authorities. 
1901, Amy sheltered her first temple runaway. Temple children were young girls dedicated to the gods and forced into prostitution to earn money for the priests. Over the years, Amy had rescued many children, often at the cost of extreme exhaustion and personal danger, and even imprisonment. Amy Carmichael was weary for fighting for these temple girls of India. The opposition to her work was so strong, and the forces that bound those girls were so evil that she wondered if she could carry that sense of responsibility any longer. Reading from her biography. At last the day came when the burden grew too heavy for me. And then it was though the tamarind trees about the house were not tamarind, but olives. And under one of those trees I saw our Lord Jesus kneeling alone. And I knew at that moment that it was his burden, these temple girls, not mine. It was he who was asking me to share it with him. Not I, who was asking him to share it with me. After that, there was only one thing to do. Who that saw Jesus kneeling there could turn away and forget? Who could have gone and done anything but to go into the garden and kneel down beside him under the olive tree? The book of Esther is this a combination of the providence of God, God on the move, God renewing and restoring and bringing healing and hope even to the most unjust situations and the most unlikely of circumstances, but it also involves a combination of human effort. The providence of God combined with human effort brings about restoration, renewal, and life. The combination of the two, God at work, and like Amy Carmichael found out, the burden for her, if she was by herself, was too much. But the burden was never hers in the first place. It first was the burden of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was calling her to share in his burden. So what burden is God calling you to share with him? What burdens that the our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ carries and went to the cross for to redeem and to bring new life. What burdens that our Lord and Jesus carries is he calling you to carry with him? See, there is a combination of God at work and us being at work. God is at work in your homes. God is at work in your life. Keep your eyes and ears open. I believe he's calling you. I believe he's calling to share in this burden. In closing, and the chapel team is going to come up and we're going to sing a song in closing. I couldn't get past this festival of Purim in this. Each and every year to this day, many believe 26, 2700 years later, they still have this festival. They still tell this story of what God has done for the community of what God has done for the Jewish people. And we in Christianity do similar things, obviously. We tell the story of the birth of Christ. When we have communion, we remember the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. We remember these things, and we celebrate these things, and we gather together in chapel, and we sing about these things, and we open God's word in reverence and respect, and we hear the stories of God, some that are challenging to hear. 
But the thought that crossed my mind was this. I think some of us have forgotten our story. I think some of us who have been born into Christian homes and have been raised in the church have forgotten our story. We have forgotten about the grace of God shed abroad in our heart and in our life and in our home. And we have stopped telling it. And because we have stopped telling it, we have forgotten it. I've only shared it once, and I believe it was here when my father came to accept Christ as Lord and Savior of his life. He did it because he wanted to marry my mom. His, my mom grew up in the church in a strong Christian home, and he went to ask my grandfather's blessing. He said, I can't let you marry my daughter unless you are a follower of Christ and you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your, your life. And what you know, miraculously, that Sunday he goes to the altar and accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of his life. Amazing. But a few years later, he made a firm commitment. A deeper commitment to the Lord. Though that spiritual journey has had ups and downs, that, that story was my story. How a man of parents who were alcoholics and a family destroyed and broken apart by alcoholism decided to allow the injustices to stop and allow the grace of God to come into his heart and life. And begin anew. You see, that is my story. And I've forgotten it. Have you forgotten your story? Have you dismissed it? Have you decided to live in a way contrary to the grace and mercy of God? And one final question for some of you. Do you want a new story to begin in your life? story that you can tell over and over again, that I have come from situations that were not of God. I've come from situations that were dealing with racism and hatred and anger and sexism, or I've just come from a home that was nominal, or I've come from experiences that have been broken, but today, do you want to start a new story where you allow the grace and mercy and peace of Christ to be shed abroad in your heart? So one day, maybe you'll have a son or daughter 40 years later. Saying, I have a story to tell. My mom and dad were in a chapel at Eastern Nazarene College in January 2012. They said the Lord wanted to put a new heart, a new song in their hearts and in their life. And the story began. A story where they served and followed Christ. And the providence of God was at work, and they decided to work alongside Jesus Christ within his kingdom. To the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. The chapel team is going to lead us in a song. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day. Would you please stand and sing? Feel free to come and pray if you wish, or pray where you're standing. I pray you remember your story, or you begin a new journey with our Lord today. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God. 
born of his washed in his blood this is my story this is my song praising my Savior all the day long this is my story this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture. Now burst on my side Angels descending Bring from above Echoes of mercy Whispers of love This is my story this is my song, raising my Savior all day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior. All the day long Perfect submission All is at rest I and my Savior Am happy and blessed Watching and waiting Above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story, this is my song, raising my Savior all the day. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Let our love be genuine. May we hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with deep affection, thinking of others more highly than ourselves. May we serve the Lord with zeal, rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer. And may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen us in every good deed and word. 
We live in such a way. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace.